All right, our reading for today is out of Acts chapter 6 and 7, uh, beginning in Acts uh, 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia uh, and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that he had a face like the face of an angel. And then we're skipping down in the story. You you might have to flip over a page to Acts chapter 7, where we pick up the end of Stephen's story, beginning in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. You may be seated. You may be seated. So today we're continuing our series on the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts since Pentecost Sunday, which was just a couple of weeks ago. But we're, we're uh, kind of tracking our way through the book of Acts this summer uh, and looking at the birth of the early church. And today we are looking specifically at the story of Stephen, if you weren't already aware of that. That's what we're doing today. You know, the best way to tell a story, a big story that's about a lot of things, is to focus that story down on one or two characters and kind of see the story through those characters' eyes. Any good movie you've ever seen does this, right? It takes the story of a war or it takes the story of some uh, political event and it narrows that, the frame of that story down to the experience of one or two people. And as we see that experience through the eyes of those characters, we are able in some very interesting way to come to a fuller understanding of what that event, what that big event was all about. And Luke, the author of the book of Acts, in, uh, it does an incredible job in this portion of Acts of really zooming in on one specific and unlikely character in the story of the birth of the church, a guy named Stephen, which seems like a very normal American name. It's probably pronounced something different in Greek. But we are, we are not told anything about Stephen's background. We don't learn anything special about him in this story. We are not told that he is special in any particular way. In fact, these are the only two chapters of the Bible which we really hear that much about Stephen. For the rest of the story of Scripture, Stephen is kind of an anonymous character. He doesn't come up. 
And Stephen is an incredibly unlikely character in this story because up until this point in the book of Acts, in the story of the beginning of the church, the only characters that really get much focus are members of what are, what are referred to as the 12 apostles. These are the 12 closest followers of Jesus, the individuals who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus, were chastised by Jesus, instructed by Jesus, and were given the responsibility and the authority of leading the early church. Specifically, these 12 apostles uh, were led by a guy named Peter. And the story of Acts up until this point really tracks with Peter's story. As Peter goes and does things, the story kind of moves forward in the book of Acts. You know, these apostles served a very important role in the church. They were the church's leaders. They carried the teachings of Jesus out into the world. And so it makes sense that, this, that the writer of the book of Acts would follow along with the apostles, the leaders. It's like tracking the history of America by thinking about its leaders, its, its political leaders or authorities. It makes a lot of sense. But in this passage, the writer of the book of Acts narrows his focus on this person named Stephen, who was not an apostle. He was most certainly an early follower of Jesus. He might have even been a follower of Jesus when, before uh, Jesus was crucified. But Stephen is not named among the apostles. The first time we hear about Stephen is back in Acts chapter 6, along with a few other people, because there was a kind of ruckus that was taking place in the early church. The early church had a responsibility to provide for uh, specifically for its widows and for those who didn't have food. And so the first program that the church started, before they started a youth group, before they started whatever other types of programs that church start, they started a feeding program. And this feeding program got a little unruly and it got a little out of control and it began to be something that the 12 apostles themselves couldn't manage. And so what they did was they selected uh, seven people to oversee the, the distribution of food to widows in the early church. And the first time we hear Stephen's name is in this, uh, is, in the, is when they set apart these seven men. You know, they set apart, the scriptures tell us that they set apart seven respected men who were full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And so when we first are introduced to Stephen, we learn that he is a good manager. He's like a, He's, he's like a really good lunchroom monitor or something like that. This is kind of how we're introduced to him. But it becomes pretty clear in the story that this is not Stephen's only skill set. And the, the distribution of food that was taking place where we're introduced to Stephen at first is actually not why we are introduced to him. It becomes quite clear that there is emphasis put on Stephen in this story because he has a bigger role to play in the story, that the writer of the book of Acts is going to do something with this character of Stephen that is much bigger than just the distribution of food. Now, the distribution of food was very important in the early church, and it's something they took seriously. But Stephen's part was a little bit more significant than just that. You know, I've, I grew up being fascinated with Sir Edmund Hillary. Does anybody, does that name ring a bell for anyone, Sir Edmund Hillary? I think it's because my mom had a really big, my mom always had National Geographic magazines hanging around. And I remember on our coffee table, there was always a big National Geographic, and it had the story of Sir Edmund Hillary, and it had these big, beautiful National Geographic photos, and I would thumb through it. And it was always very interesting to me. If you're familiar with the story of Sir Edmund Hillary, he was the first man, along with his Sherpa, to summit Mount Everest. At least he's the first people that we know that, that we recorded were able to do it. 
when, when Sir Edmund Hillary summoned Mount Everest, it was considered a nearly impossible thing to do. No one really believed that a human could summit the mountain and actually survive. Yet, Hillary did it. And he was immortalized because of it. He's called Sir Edmund Hillary because he was knighted, even though he's from New Zealand, uh, which I guess is great. Uh, we're, I've never been knighted before. Uh, but Hillary was considered a kind of pioneer, a pioneer in something that people thought was impossible. And, and his feet, his physical feet, inspired people. He was a trailblazer. He was a pioneer. And Stephen, in a similar way, in the book of Acts, is a kind of pioneer. He's a trailblazer. He's a person whose example defines what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world. And for the vast majority of Christians who have followed Jesus for 2,000 years, Stephen's example has served as a kind of pioneering encouragement to the church. Only Stephen is not notable because of some great obstacle that he overcame. And this is what's so interesting about Stephen's story. Stephen is notable because he is the first martyr of the church. He's the first person to be killed. The, the first Jesus follower to die for his, for his allegiance to Jesus. Now, this is strange, but in our day, the word martyr means to suffer or to die. Most of us are familiar with the word for the sake of a cause that's bigger than ourselves. We are familiar with the word martyr. Usually, this word is used in a religious context, but we also throw it around kind of flippantly, right? But we get the word martyr from the Greek word martyreo, which uh, is the word that is translated in the scriptures, witness. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he says to his disciples that you will be my witnesses to all the world. And by the second century of the, uh, in history, but also the second century of the church, the word martyreo or martyr became a technical term for those who died specifically because of the profession of their allegiance to Jesus or because of their active spreading of the message of Jesus. This is what the church historian uh, William Bixler, this is how he puts it. He says, The early church's theology of martyrdom was born not in synods, not in councils, but in sunlit, blood-drenched coliseums and catacombs, dark and secret as death. The word martyr means witness and is used as such throughout the New Testament. In the history of the church, martyrdom plays a kind of central role in the history of what it means to be a Christian. And this was true for, for almost all of the early Christians in the history of the church, both up until about the 380, 380 BC, or AD and then past that time as well. Martyrdom was kind of a, a more present reality for most followers of Jesus than it is for us today. The 12 apostles that we had talked about earlier, of the 12, 11 of them were martyred, were killed because of the message of Jesus. The only one who lived, church history tells us, they attempted to kill him but were unsuccessful, and so they sent him to an island, and there he wrote the last book of the Bible. Needless to say, suffering and martyrdom became a very real possibility for the first followers of Jesus, and they needed help. 
They needed inspiration even. They needed direction about how to endure this situation well. And early followers of Jesus looked to the example of Stephen, to the story of Stephen in the book of Acts as a kind of exemplar, as a, as a picture, as a story that helped them both understand and walk through their suffering in a way that made sense to them. In a, way that they could in, in a way that they could deal with it in their regular lives. Because the threat of martyrdom and the threat of suffering from faith hung over everyone. Which is an interesting, which is interesting, isn't it? And I think presents an interesting problem for us here today. Because I have been a Christian for basically my whole life. I grew up in the church. And I cannot think of one time in my life where I was in fear of either persecution or death for my faith in Jesus. I can't think of one. I've always felt very comfortable. I, wore, I was one of those kids who wore like Jesus shirts to high school, and I never even got beat up. Like, it never happened. The truth is, is that Christians in the modern West are disconnected from this reality that we're talking about today. We are disconnected from the experience of the vast majority of Christians for the vast majority of church history. We are disconnected from the reality of it. The truth is that Christians in the modern world, in places like America and Europe and Australia and England, don't have to contend with this reality. It's not something we face, and it's not an active part of our faith. But unlike us, most Christians throughout most of the history of the church in most of the world have had to deal, struggle, figure out this issue. How do I deal with suffering? How do I deal with persecution directed direct at me because I am a follower of Jesus, how do I deal with the threat of possibly dying because of, the, because of my allegiance to Jesus? How do I deal with this? You know, most Christians in America just don't think about this. We don't, we don't deal with it. But many Christians in the world, even today, still do. It's not uncommon. There are Christians right now, not right now, but maybe last night, I think, because they're ahead of us, in China who had to have secret gatherings in homes so that they wouldn't endure persecution from the state. You know, we don't have to hide our Bibles, the, the scriptures, uh, when we go out in public like somebody in Afghanistan might have to do for fear of persecution. We don't live in fear of an oppressive regime who is bent on the systematic obligation of all religious people, like anybody who was living in the USSR under communism just 25, 30 years ago. We today are not Coptic Christians in Egypt whose places of worship have been routinely bombed in the last, really, year or two. And so every time that they go to church, there is a real possibility that they are going to be subject to another attack. It is a real possibility. It is becoming a more and more common thing in that part of the world. And so the temptation for us is to look at this text and kind of go, okay, like everything's good, right? Like I got to drive into the parking lot and everything was fine today. There is no, there is, there is no struggle. There is no, there's no persecution. There is no martyrdom in my world. How, what, what does this mean for me? And the truth of the matter is, is that it means a lot 
First of all, because if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, it is important for you to understand that your experience is not the norm. It is rather unique in the history of the Christian faith, and that's just a healthy perspective to have, first and foremost. And the second is that uh, Stephen's story and his, uh, his approach to his martyrdom and to his suffering, I do think teaches us something about suffering in, a broader, in the broader sense of the term this morning. Because while we don't uh, endure persecution in this country, while people who follow Jesus aren't under threat of death in this country, we, like every other person who has ever existed in the world, do experience suffering. We do experience pain. And, and the way Stephen endures both suffering and pain and the way that that is transformed in the hands of God, I think is instructive for us this morning. And so the temptation is for us to just kind of like hop over this teaching and say it doesn't apply to me, really. But I think it can be instructive. So that's kind of what I want to do. I just want to hop into our text for today to look at Stephen's story in a, in a, in as closely as we can and hopefully to derive some understanding of how we are to deal or how we are to understand Stephen's experience in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And then I hope to just draw out one point. This is a one-point message this morning, which I hope you will uh, appreciate. Uh, And then we'll come to the table for communion. All right? All right. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to our teaching text. Uh, There's a big section uh, on Stephen in chapter 6 and 7. But if you just kind of open your Bibles to chapter 6 and then uh, keep your finger in chapter 7, you'll be able to walk along with us. So Stephen is first introduced to us in Acts chapter 6 as the first non-apostle to perform signs and wonders. This is notable. This is notable because up until this point, there is no one in in the story of the book of Acts who is actually a kind of carrier of the miraculous in the same way that the apostles are. Stephen is not an apostle. He has no specific title. He is rather just a person following Jesus, a person carrying the message of Jesus. Now, what we learn from this passage in, in previous passages, when, we, when Stephen is first introduced to us as somebody who's uh, trying to get the feeding program straight in the early church, we learn that Stephen is probably a Greek-speaking Jew. We talked about that from a few weeks ago. But a Greek-speaking Jew was often referred to as a Hellenistic Jew. It was a, a Jewish person that uh, probably didn't uh, originally live in Jerusalem or, cl- or, cr- or close to Jerusalem, but rather grew up on the outskirts um, of and, and possibly not even in Israel proper. And he was uh, in charge of dealing with a lot of Greek-speaking Jewish widows who were in Jerusalem who were being neglected at the table, who were being neglected at the serving uh, of food. And so Stephen, a a Greek-speaking Jew himself, was selected to kind of help them in this process. But what we quickly quickly learn in Acts chapter 6 is that Stephen wasn't just good at administration. He was also good at speaking, and he was also a carrier of the miraculous. Stephen was uh, an overachiever, in short. He, uh, he seems to be going out into the public squares, and specifically to Greek-speaking Jews like him, 
This is why the text says uh, that he stirred up Greek-speaking Jews, and he's communicating the message of Jesus to them in their own language. Now, up until this point, the apostles, who were, who were not necessarily Greek-speaking Jews, most of the apostles, some of them were, but most of the apostles uh, either didn't, spoke, didn't speak Greek very well or didn't speak it at all. But Stephen, as a carrier of the message of Jesus, is going to Greek-speaking Jews, is going to Hellenistic Jews, and he's communicating this message about Jesus. And it says in verse 12 that Stephen stirs up the people or that the people are stirred up against Stephen's, Stephen's message. They don't like what he is saying, and so they get the Sanhedrin involved. They get the Sanhedrin involved. Again, we talked a little bit about the Sanhedrin last week, or the week before. The Sanhedrin was the pseudo-religious body of the Jewish people. It, they were priests and scribes and people like that that served both a religious function, but also a quasi-biblical uh, sorry, uh, a religious function, but also a political function as well. And so these Greek-speaking Jews are mad about what Stephen is saying to them about Jesus, and so they go to the leadership and they get the Sanhedrin involved. Now, what's interesting about the fact that these Greek-speaking Jews got the Sanhedrin involved is that from Acts chapter 4 to Acts, to the end of Acts chapter 7, there are there are three appearances of the, of the leaders of the early church before the Sanhedrin, before this body. The first we studied last week was, uh, was when Peter and John uh, came before the Sanhedrin, and they were chastised or told not to talk about this Jesus anymore and sent away. The second one we actually skipped over, but it was another time that Peter and John are taken uh, before the Sanhedrin, and this time they are beaten. They're flogged and told not to say anything about Jesus. And the third experience of a Jesus follower before the Sanhedrin is this experience. It's, uh, it's Stephen's experience. And this one ends with a martyrdom. So there is this escalating way in which there these early Christians interacted with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin got a little bit more frustrated and a little bit more punitive as, as each successive time that a follower of Jesus doesn't stop communicating this message. And Stephen is the story of uh, the third appearance before the Sanhedrin. The, after the Greek-speaking Jews uh, brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin, we skipped it today because it's probably the longest uh, sermon, really, in the book of Acts. But Stephen gives this incredibly long and incredibly eloquent sermon to the Sanhedrin. As he stands before them, he tells the story of Israel again. He explains what he is saying about this Messiah, about, the me about Jesus and his message. And after he concludes his message, after he concludes his sermon, the text tells us, in picking up in verse 54, that when the me members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth, and they went after Stephen. Stephen serves, this, uh, serves as a messenger or as a witness of Jesus, and the people can't handle it. The Sanhedrin, this, the Jewish people who had called him into their, uh, their governing body, could not handle what he said. At one point, uh, the writer of the book of Acts says they ran at him with their hands over their ears because they didn't want to hear it anymore. 
It says that their jaws were clinched and they gnashed their teeth. Have you ever been really mad before? When I was young, I, I haven't really been in any fights. I wasn't, I wasn't much of a fighter growing up. But every once in a while, I would get really mad at my brother. And I would, like, push him over the couch. And after that experience, I would, like, feel really bad and probably go to my room. And uh, I would be, my jaw would hurt. You ever have that? Your jaw would hurt because when you get mad, you clench your teeth, right? It's something most, a lot of people naturally do. It's why when you play football, you need to wear a mouth guard. Otherwise, your jaw hurts at the end. And the, the writer of the book of Acts tells us that this is the type of response, the just pure, unadulterated anger that Stephen's teaching about the person of Jesus and about the story of Israel called out of the Sanhedrin, called out of these people. And as they, and as they covered their ears and at they, as they ran after him, they uh, grabbed him, they took him outside the city gates and they began to stone him. They began to stone him. Now, what's interesting about this and probably uh, uh, has to do with some, of, some political things that were happening in the day is that while the Sanhedrin was the religious and slightly political ruling body of, the, of Jerusalem and of the people of Israel at this time, the Romans were actually the government that kind of resided over top of all of that. And the Romans had taken away from the Sanhedrin the right to give the death penalty. They said, you can, you can uh, exercise religious law, basically, but you can't kill anybody. If you're going to kill anybody, you've got to come to us, and, we'll, and we will say whether this can happen or not. This is why in the story of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is ran from, uh, from religious authorities to kings and to Pontius Pilate and back. That this is why he's kind of dragged around town to multiple political authorities, because the Romans had said, uh, that the Jewish ruling authority couldn't kill somebody, and so they needed that Roman stamp of approval before they killed Jesus. But in this story, the Sanhedrin seems to be so mad, so lathered up, that they just, in a kind of an act of a mob mentality, they grab Stephen and they run him out of town, and they begin to stone him. And as they stone him, you might uh, recognize a lot then of what happens at the end of Stephen's story as being very reminiscent, almost mirroring in many ways the crucifixion of Jesus. Stephen uh, says, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. He commits his spirit to God in the same way that Jesus commits his spirit to God. We are, uh, our attention is drawn to witnesses who see this, who see this martyrdom, specifically uh, a person named Saul, who would later be a, a significant persecutor of the church, but also a, a convert to the way of Jesus, who would later become the Apostle Paul, the writer of the majority of the, the New Testament Bible that we have today. The story is fascinating, and it points out all of these interesting facts, specifically that Stephen continues in the teaching and practice of Jesus in verse 60 when he, when he chooses to love his enemies and ask God to not hold this sin against them rather than hating them. Stephen exemplifies the way in which a Christian is supposed to endure suffering and persecution. And, if, and, as we, and when we read this as 21st century American Christians, very rarely would we see it the way that probably uh, an early Christian would have read this. 
they would have read this passage as a kind of blueprint, an example, an encouragement even, about the way that you endure suffering and persecution and martyrdom. They would try to emulate, to copy Stephen in this regard, because he was the first, he was the pioneer, he was the example of the way in which you endure suffering. And the interesting thing about the story of Stephen is that his suffering, his martyrdom, doesn't just stop here. The book of, End, the book of Acts doesn't stop. Actually, Stephen's story acts as a kind of catalytic moment in the story of the church. Up until the time when Stephen was martyred, the church was fairly centralized within Jerusalem. It hadn't ventured outside uh, outside Jerusalem very much. Everybody that the church was ministering to, everybody that the church was communicating the message of Jesus to, primarily lived in the city of Jerusalem. But after uh, Stephen's martyrdom, the message begins to spread outside the city of Jerusalem as the church, in fear, begins to go out into surrounding cities, begins to uh, move out from Jerusalem to Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. You see, Stephen is a kind of transitional figure. He's an example, he's a pioneer, but he's also a kind of transitional figure that shows us, in, a, in no uncertain terms, that this persecution, that this, that this martyrdom, that this pressure that the church was put under, it made explicit in the martyrdom of Stephen, is not a hindrance to the message of Jesus. That it is rather a kind of catalytic moment. It is something that pushes the message of Jesus further. It actually spreads it out. And historically, throughout the history of the church, this type of persecution was not the type of thing that stamped down the message of Jesus, but rather sped it up. It was the early church father, Tertullian, that said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he meant by that was that uh, that persecution in the early church specifically was not a thing that stopped the message, but rather propelled it forward. And why this is so, and why this is so significant is because, frankly, the church was powered by this type of persecution. It empowered them. It made them go forward. And the early church needed this type of understanding in order to survive, in order to move forward, in order to grow. And so the question that we have when we look at Stephen's story from our perspective, from our 21st century perspective, is what do we do with it? What does Stephen's story show us this morning? What does it speak to us? And I think, and this is my one point this morning, that the story of Stephen shows us that in the Christian faith, suffering is not a hindrance to God's plan. Suffering is not a hindrance to God's plan. Sometimes it's a catalyst. Stephen is the first martyr of the church. He's the first man to literally be killed for this message, yet the message goes forth. You know, because of the persecution of the church, the, like I said, this message goes out. And the most intense person of, uh, persecution of the church was something that was going to come hundreds of years later under the Roman Emperor Domitian. 
But Stephen's death was a kind of catalyst. It was kind of an example, and it helped people understand how to endure suffering. And while we as American Christians don't endure persecution in the same way that most Christians throughout the history of the church have endured persecution, we still, do, we still deal with suffering, don't we? We still deal with mental anguish and pain, depression, anxiety. We still deal with physical suffering and sickness. We still, we still deal with situational suffering and pain, whether that be in our finances or our situation in life, whether that be in our personal relationships. We know what it is to suffer, maybe not in the same way as Stephen in the early church, but we still understand it. But what we, are, what we see in the story of Stephen and what we see over and over and over again in the teaching of the Scriptures is that suffering and difficulty and pain, even persecution and martyrdom, are an engine that should propel our faith, not an impediment to it. And the reason that this is the case is because of what is called Christian hope capital H, hope. Christians have a kind of hope. Hope in a God who looks like Jesus, who himself suffered on our behalf and worked through that suffering to bring us freedom. And so the pattern of the Christian faith is one that sees suffering not as a hindrance, but as an opportunity. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright uh, gives Christians a kind of context, uh, a kind of, uh, excuse me, concrete reasons that Christians should hope in the face of pain and suffering. Why is it that we hope? And he really gives three reasons. He says Christians should hope in the face of suffering because of what God has done, what God will do, and what God is doing. And so this morning, we're just going to walk briefly through those things. What, what has God done? God, in the person of Jesus, has defeated evil through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So no matter what evil or pain or difficulty befall us, Christians have been people who have always believed that those things have been utterly defeated by the person of Jesus, that on the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death. And that though those, uh, those are pr still present realities in our lives, they don't hold ultimate power over us. What God will do, which leads us to what God will do, God will remove evil totally from our world. God will remove evil totally from our world. The promise of the scriptures is that God will wipe away every tear from our eye. That every pain, that every abuse, that every persecution, that every difficulty, God will destroy because of the work of Jesus. And that gives us hope. That gives us hope. That while we endure suffering, that while we experience pain, the world that we are moving towards is one in which we will be free of those things. But it's not just future hope that we hold out for. The third thing is important as well. We are to have hope in the face of pain and suffering because of what God is doing now. 
And now we learn that God is actively, actively working along with his church to bring about his plan of redemption and renewal. That God, in the person of Jesus, is actively reconciling individual human hearts back to himself and actively in your life and in my life working out his plan of redemption and renewal. That God's plan for us is not that we would avoid all suffering and pain, but that out of the, out of the suffering and pain and the struggle that we, in, we endure, God would use it and work with it to bring about something beautiful. Have you ever, I like to use the analogy of a gardener, but have any of you been gardening this summer? It's hard work, right? It's difficult. We started a, a vegetable garden like three weeks before uh, we had our little boy Amos, and needless to say, we have not tended the garden well. <laughs> it's difficult. But it's the work that is put in that creates a kind of beauty, right? And the, the, the story of the Christian faith is that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the thing in which we are enduring, there is a kind of lasting hope. Because God has done something about it. He will bring a day when that thing will be dealt with finally. And he is now, in your current circumstances, working to renew and restore you in the midst of whatever you're experiencing. And the thing that you are enduring, the suffering that you are walking through, the pain that you have had in your life, when seen in the light of eternity, will become a kind of joy if you endure it, and walk through it in the name of Jesus. But in our day, very often, what do we do with our pain and with our suffering? We medicate it with actual medication or with drugs or alcohol. Very often, we medicate it with Netflix, right? We medicate it. I know people that have medicated their, their pain with, with exercise. I know people who have medicated their pain with all kinds of things, but we medicate it. We, we, we ignore it. We walk away from it. We just pick up our phone and scroll through whatever. But this is not the call of the Christian faith. This is not the approach to suffering that we are called to endure. We are called to see our suffering as a kind of joy. In the book of James in the New Testament, this is what James says at the very beginning of his book. In, in James chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. We, at our church, we don't believe that God... Uh, ordains our struggle, that he makes bad things happen to us, that he intentionally causes the pain and struggle that we, are we, we encounter. But we do believe that he is a redemptive God who, when we endure and when we encounter those things, is actively about the business of using those things to build us up and to better us, to present us as mature and complete people, lacking nothing. And I don't want to be coy about it. And I don't think God is coy about it either. Because we have, many of us in this room, experienced terrible suffering and horrible experiences. And some of us, and for some of us, our, our current experience is quite bad. And so I don't want to make light of it. But I do want to hold out the truth of the Scriptures. That if you endure that, 
uh, and walk through it in the hand of God. God will use it. He will use it to propel your life forward. He might even use it to make your life better. He is not the one doing it to you, but he will use it. He will use it to perfect you and mature you. He will use it to help other people going through similar things. He will use it. He will use it. He will use it. And we know he will use it because he did the same thing for Jesus. We serve a God not who is like distant and far off, but rather a God who has been brought near to us in the person of Jesus and who endured his own suffering. You know, we said Stephen was the first martyr, and he was. He was the first martyr for the name of Jesus. But the first, uh, but Jesus himself died first, didn't he? We serve a God who willingly went to the cross on our behalf and endured suffering, pain, persecution, and even death that our experience, our hearts, and our relationships to God might be transformed. This is what the cross of Christ is, and this is why the cross of Christ plays this central role in our belief, in our life as followers of Jesus. And this is why the cross of Christ is such a central component to what it means to believe in Jesus and why we can never walk away from it. Because the cross of Christ is a symbol of Christ's suffering. But it's also a symbol of the ways in which God is working to overcome and controvert our suffering, to overcome death, to defeat sin, and to destroy our suffering. The cross is a picture of hope. And so this morning, as we come to the table, uh, I th- it would, it's a perfectly fitting thing to come to uh, the practice of communion together, this practice where we remember the suffering of Christ on our behalf, and we see the way in which God, in the person of Jesus, used suffering to make us free. And this pattern of enduring suffering, of experiencing pain, and then as we go through it, allowing God to transform it and use it to make us free continues to be a pattern in the life of the church. You know, Stephen is the first martyr, but he will not be the last. I saw one number this week that in the last 10 years, something like 90,000 Christians were martyred in the world. Just in the last 10 years. Think about that over 2,000 years. It's not an uncommon experience in the vast major- for the vast majority of Christians, for the vast majority of the history of the church. And yet, it is something that has motivated, that has propelled the faith forward. And I don't know where you are at this morning. I don't know where, what you're experiencing or what you're enduring or what maybe you're running from this morning. But what I know is that this is the pattern of the Christian faith. That as we endure struggle, as we endure pain, as we endure suffering, as we walk through these realities, God has promised to use them to transform our circumstances and to transform us into people after his heart. And we do not suffer alone. Rather, we suffer or maybe a better way of putting it is that 
there is one who suffers for us in the person of Jesus. In Jesus, we have one who has suffered and has carried our difficulty and our pain, and we can look to him as the one who will transform it and make it glorious. And so as we come to the table this morning, I just want to encourage you to both meditate and give your pain and your suffering over to Jesus, the one who endured it, but also the one who can transform it into something beautiful. I know so many people who have stories of pain and of difficulty, and when they look back on that story, after they've given it to God, as, as they've allowed God to renew and transform them through it, would say, I wouldn't change a thing. Because God, through that process, changed everything for me. And while you might be in the midst of pain, you might be in the midst of difficulty, the truth of the matter is that God wants to use that to transform you. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church about this practice of communion, tells the story of Christ's sacrifice on the cross through the practice of communion. And he says in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. And we pray that you would transform our pain and suffering. That as we identify with our suffering servant, Jesus, that you would know that you are a God who has already defeated death. You've already defeated pain. And that you are actively working in our present to bring about renewal and reconciliation in our current circumstances. And so this morning, as we whatever we're, whatever we're carrying this morning, God, would you help us to bear up under it with the help of Jesus? And would you speak to our hearts today and remind us of what you are doing to transform that and to make us whole. And so Jesus, as we come to the table, we give our hearts to you. We embrace your way, this upside down pattern that is so present in the scriptures. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be a people who embrace the difficulty and pain in our lives that you might be revealed as the true God pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. If those helping with serving of communion could come. Uh, at Grace Community, we practice an open communion, which means that you don't have to be a member of our church to, to receive communion with us. All, all we ask is that you follow Jesus with your life. Uh, we are... We at Grace Community, we like to use our legs. So we get up, we come to the table, uh, we, re we receive communion. Uh, you can take the elements uh, back to your seat and receive them there in a moment of, uh, of prayer. Uh, and then uh, we will sing a little bit together and I will uh, come back up and dismiss us. So uh, the table is open. Uh, come to the Lord.